Hey everybody, the March 2023 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And hello everybody, here Jen and the Pooches and I are in the Valley of the Gods in Utah. Actually, the Valley of the Gods is over on the other side of that butte. We're just in a little nearby creek bed that we were exploring with the dogs so they could get good and muddy before we get back into the RV up there on the hill. And uh, folks, what I'm about to do is, as every month, tell you about all the games that Jen and I played over the preceding four or five weeks. This time, we played almost all of them on the road as we continue our tour of the American Southwest, and we're having a grand old time. Although, looks like it's uh, time for breakfast, so everybody's heading up, so I gotta follow. Before we get going, though, two things. And my apologies for the wind noise. These gusts keep coming up. I keep trying to avoid them. But anyway, thing number one, um, because I only brought my little laptop on the road, uh, let's go ahead and give you a view of the uh, seven sisters back there. How about, okay. Uh, since I brought my little laptop on the road, uh, it's not powerful enough to do serious editing. So this month we will not be hearing from Shade, Kimberly, and all the rest of the contributors. It's just going to be the games me and Jen played. And number two, this is sadly the last Rotto Roundup sponsored by Funnigan Games, who have been such an amazing partner helping keeping us running. But you may have heard they are closing down their online retail. I talked about this a bit with Ruel and Chris George in the uh, last R&R and R show. You can hit that I in the top right corner of the screen, or maybe it's there. I'm not quite sure. Uh, um, and go watch that. Did a little bit of a eulogy. But let me tell you right now, folks, they're going out, on, out of business online is good news for you because everything that they still have in stock, although their stocks are dwindling fast, is 40% off. And their prices were already competitive. So there are still some good games. I was checking last night and uh, you could go find them. You know, this, uh, there's a link for it down in the show notes. And uh, you won't see the 40% off till you actually get to the checkout page. Um, so you'll see higher prices and then just boom, cut in half when you go to buy. Um, I just want to say again, a huge thank you to Funnigan for sponsoring the show, helping keeping us running and helping keeping, helping grow the board game industry as a whole. Check out that r and r our show where we talk about that a little bit more uh unless you just want to hear about a bunch of games in which case hold on and we'll be right back okay everybody we are now inside there's a little bit less wind although that continues to buffet us heavily in this uh little part of what's the name of this place again uh valley of the gods Right. We uh, might actually use the mobile nature of our mobile home and move uh, tomorrow to, if these winds don't die down. But supposedly they're going to die down this weekend as the temperatures increase. So fingers crossed uh, that we will not be... Uh pushed around quite so much. But folks, uh, you don't really care about life on the road. You just want to hear about the games, right? Well, let's get going, starting with number 14 on the list, Tenpenny Parks, which is... A perfectly fine little gateway style game. It's a cross of worker placement and polyomino style tile laying. Now, first of all, uh, even though it's from first time designer Nate Linhart, congratulations, Nate. Oh my goodness, is this gorgeous? Because, of course, it is from artist Vincent Dutre, one of the greatest board game artists working today, uh, one of my absolute favorites. And it looks every bit as good as you would expect from a Vincent Dutre game. Um, and it plays nice and sharp, too, if you are looking for a quick, fast-playing, um, what do you call it, a gateway-style game. Because the two halves of the game, first of all, there's worker placement, which uh, basically we use... <clears throat> predominantly to grab the different polyomino style pieces that we want to add 
to our little neck of the wood to make the best carnival we can. And, um, you know, that's pretty straightforward. There's nothing really groundbreaking about the worker placement in this game, but if uh, this is you wanting to introduce your friends and family to worker placement, uh, there's a lot worse choices you can make. It works really nice and is smooth, simple, and fast. Once you get those tiles, you have to lay them out on your uh, own little personal uh, fairgrounds that are blocked off by... Oh, what do you call them? Trees. One of the actions you can do is to chop the trees down if you want. But if you can work around them, you can save some time and be more efficient with the puzzle of the polyomino pieces. Plus, there are certain spaces on your fairgrounds you want to cover to get extra bonuses too. Uh, very um, barren park in that regard. And uh, yeah, the the uh, polyomino tile pieces are quite nice. Uh, the big twist of the game that I thought was going to be a bit more impactful than it turns out to be is the fact that no polyomino piece can be directly adjacent to another. They, you have to keep space between them all, which makes you know it a little bit tougher to uh, perfectly uh, lay out your fairgrounds for your for your ten penny park. But it didn't have near as much of an impact as I would have hoped. Uh, you know, I was kind of expecting something more like you know Founders of Teotihuacan. So. It's got nice, solid, family-friendly, gateway-style worker placement and tiling uh, with some really great components, wonderful art. And if you're looking for a good gateway uh, for people who are attracted to this type of scenario, you could do a lot worse. It's sharp, it's fun, it's just a little bit too lightweight for me and Jen, which is why Tenpenny Parks comes in at number 14. Then let's talk about number 13 on the list, Star Trek Scooper Skill Pinball. Not just pinball, Super Skill Pinball. Now, this is a sequel to a, or I guess I say the latest iteration of a very popular line of Roland Rights that recreate the feel of a modern pinball game. You know, with all the literal bells and whistles and flashing lights and all of that, uh, it's, uh, you know, Super Seal Skin Ball and all of its offshoots are very smartly designed. And if you love Roland Rights and if you love pinball, modern pinball, they are definitely worth checking out. Now, me, I could care less about pinball, but I do love Star Trek. And this has four different unique pinball tables that uh, cover different parts of the Star Trek pantheon. There is Starfleet Academy, which is just a very very simple, straightforward intro to the game. There's the trouble with tribbles, where tribbles are multiplying like crazy, and if you can keep them in just the right amount, you can score big bonus points off of them. There is, um, oh, the Enterprise fighting the Borg, uh, which can be a is like a, probably the, one of the biggest, most complex implementations of this system so far. And honestly, let's see if we can find it. My favorite one is the Lower Decks version, uh, ProMotion, where it's uh, where the, uh, gravity is gone haywire and it's kind of like the, if you would imagine a pinball machine where instead of it just being a ramp from one side you know down that keeps gravity bringing the ball down there's like two ramps butted up against each other so if you get the ball over one side it'll go down the other and you've got flippers on both sides which replicates you know a pinball machine trying to replicate the idea of gravity going crazy on the on the ship that's so cool. There are so many cool, unique ideas in here that bring this Star Trek feel to life. So why does it come in at number 13? Um, the same problem I've always had with Super Skill Pinball. It takes too long. Uh, officially, this is a 45-minute game. For us, it feels more like an hour, give or take. But even 45 is too long. For such a light, simple, fast-playing, family-friendly gateway, this should be 
a 20-minute game. If they could give us rules, and I was hoping, hoping, hoping there'd be some alternate rules this time for a way to express play the game without sacrificing any of the ways that you build up and you do all the cool things, but just kind of speeding it up so that we could have a 20-minute roll and write. Oh my god, this would be perfect. But, like I said, for us, it's a little too long. Both my wife Jen and I thought it kind of overstays its welcome a bit. But, hey, again, we're not pinball wizards. So, uh, you know, maybe it's perfect. I mean, it must be because so many people rave about this series. I thought Star Trek would be enough, but it wasn't quite enough. And so, Star Trek Super Skill Pinball comes in at number 13. Then, let's go on to number 12. Sobek Two Players. Which, I have to admit, is a really weird name for a game. You'd expect this to be called, like, Sobek Duel. That's kind of the standard. But, this is a two-player-only game inspired by Sobek, which I have to admit, it's been so long since I played it, I barely remember the original Sobek. I remember liking it back in the day, although I don't still have it anymore. Where's a picture of the game? There we go. Here's a picture of the game set up. So, this is a two-player-only game, no solo mode, and <clears throat> I love the core um, tile-drafting mechanism here. Basically, there's this onk. And if the onk is facing east and west, that means on your turn, you can grab anything on that row. If it's facing north and south, you can grab anything on that column. Or it can face diagonally as well. But you want to take the tile that's right next to the onk. If you try to go and grab a tile that's further away, then you have to grab all the tiles in between the onk and the one you want and put them in your corruption pile. And as you might imagine, whoever has the most corruption loses a lot of points at the end of the game. But hey, it might be worth it to grab that perfect set collection that you're trying to get. You know, that last ivory or fish or whatever it is that you're so you could sell at market and make a lot of points. So the interesting thing is, after you pick up that tile, you put the onk where the tile was, and maybe pick up some corruption along the way, and the tile you picked up, all the tiles have a arrows on the edges saying which way the onk will now face. So if I grab that tile that's over to the right, and the tile I take away had up and down, then the onk is going to be up and down, and I'm letting you take anything in that column. And that's where the interesting thing comes in, because I might know that you desperately want that super valuable um, uh, ivory tile that's in that column. So I can't let you have that, but I've got to grab that one tile. So do I try to puzzle a way that, hey, I can go around and come at it from another direction, and you'll give me the access to it? That's really cool. I like that a lot. And there's a really cool economic sales system as well for how you sell and get immediate bonuses, but then you can upsell later. I like all that too. So why is it so low? What didn't I like? Two things. One, uh, man, it wouldn't be a Bruno Cathala game or co-design if there wasn't some random... Uh, take that thrown in there for no reason. Some of the special powers you can unlock in this game are literally go fish, stealing car tiles directly from your opponents, or messing with each other, and that just didn't need to be here. That's kind of a bummer. Now, it's interesting. You can kind of get around it because every... Um, what are they called? Uh, they're, they're the face-down tiles. Um, the uh, character tiles that have those special powers that you can use. If you don't want to use them... Uh, I don't want to steal from you. I can, uh, but there's ivory on it. I could add it to my ivory collection, or what, what, or lumber, or whatever is on that particular tile, and that's nice. But that leads to the other problem. Not all of those characters are created equal. Some of them are so much 
more powerful than others. And the thing is, all the characters are face down. So it's a total crapshoot. Whether you're going to get some merchant who like, oh, it kind of feels like I got an extra turn by using the merchant. That was a nice little power. Or if you get the queen, which feels like you got two or three turns worth of bonuses. And it's all just total randomness because they're face down. And Jen and I found, well, the game can feel a little swingy as a result. And... I wish there was a variant that said, hey, have all the characters face up. If they're not all created equal, if some are better than others, then let us choose. Let that be part of the actual drafting instead of it, what it is right now, a, a luck shoot that you might get the perfect one for you and I get one that, oh, maybe that'll be good if I can bend my entire game backwards to try to make it somewhat useful. So the randomness of the characters and the swinginess of how powerful they are, plus a little bit of take that, is kind of what kept Sobek, uh, two-player, from being a uh, you know something that Jen and I fell in love with. But if you don't mind a little bit of two-player and you like a little bit of surprise drama, you might want to check it out. Because again, that draft is so cool. I love it a lot. Number 12. Sobek. Okay. And let's move on to number 11 on the list, Dice Manor. As the sun is literally going down over the mountain, uh, things might be getting dark pretty soon, folks, but I'm going to keep on going. Let's talk about Dice Manor, the latest from Arcane Wonders. And um, yeah, this has got some really sharp stuff. I think this is going to be a very popular game. It's uh, one of the Dice Tower Essentials, so they love it over there, and I totally get why if you're playing it at a higher player count. Because I'll just cut to the chase, folks. This is a very, very cool auction game, which I guess uh, kind of borrows the auction system from an older dice game I haven't played called Las Vegas, I believe. Um, but it adds a whole bunch of really cool tile-laying stuff because we are rolling a handful of dice, grouping them up. Hey, there's my ones, there's my threes, there's my single four. And if I want that room that's in the slot number four, I could use my single four and hopefully get it. But you might outbid me because I can see what you rolled and you rolled three fours. Are you going to use all three fours to outbid me? Do you not care about that room and maybe I could grab something else? Or the thing is, if I go ahead and bid with only one four and then you outbid me with three fours, I've still got a shot because after I bid, the rest of my dice get re-rolled. And if I could roll some more fours, maybe I could outbid you later on. That's a cool system. I like it a lot. I like pretty much everything about this game, um, especially as you build up your perfect manner, because you know, we're real estate agents trying to show it off. You can use your dice to get more, um, to earn more dice. You can use your dice to get um, you know, abilities to change dice, you know, mitigate your die results. You, um, you can use dice to um, bid on the rooms themselves that you add to your manor. But most importantly, you can send those dice to the manor itself to be part of a guided tour, which is the way you score points. So there's a lot of use for these dice. I really like everything. But the problem is there's really nothing in the game to tighten it up so that there is an increased amount of tension in two players. At four players, I suspect I would be so wrapped up with, oh, you rolled a bunch of fours. I don't have any. Can I go for that? What am I going to do? But in a two-player game, there's just as many options. And I, Jen, I found we would tend to just, oh, I'm over here, you're over there. We don't really butt into each other that much. And even if you do outbid me, there's so many other things I can do because I'm not fighting against four players for all these limited resources. When there's only two players, 
the resources aren't very limited at all. And so that was kind of a bummer. I wish they could have done a little bit of tightening. Now, my wife, Jen, she didn't mind at all. Sometimes she just likes a nice, chillaxed, laid-back game. And that's what this is at two-player. But I would have liked it to see a little bit more tension-filled, which is why Dice Manor comes in at number 11. But again, I think it would rank much higher at a higher player count. Okay, let's go on to number 10. And as the sun goes down, is my satellite starting to fail? Come on, satellite. Oh, uh, here we go. All right, it's, it's showing up. Hasn't failed me yet. Tribes of the Wind. Now, this is going to be a very, very hot game. It was uh, got a lot of attention at Essence Spiel last year. And um, it's going to be going wider later this year. And as more people get their hands on it, I think they're going to be falling in love with it, in part because of Vincent Dutre's absolutely stunning art in this uh, future world where mankind is reverted to more primitive ways and we're trying to undo all the pollution of the ancient ones. That's us. And uh, yeah, I like the subject matter. I like the presentation. And I like the core card mechanism. Most turns, I got a handful of cards. I'm just going to try and play a card. Um, meet its requirements to be able to um, get whatever benefit. But the thing is, often those requirements have nothing to do with me. They have to do with my neighbors. I might want to play a card because it gives me a really good uh, bonus or whatever I'm trying to do, but it, this card says to be able to use it, my I have to have fewer fire cards than the neighbor to my left and my right. And I've got one fire card. I see my neighbor to the left has three fire cards, but my neighbor to the right has no fire cards. So, I could play Play the card, but it would give its weak benefit, and so I want to wait until my neighbor to the right drafts one of those fire cards that are in the draft on their turn. So do I go ahead and play it right now, and um, you know get the weaker version, or do I wait? Because if I can anticipate what my neighbor to the right wants to do, um, because hey, they might want fire cards because the fire cards are the ones that move your um, your wind riders around. If I recall, no, no, fire cards are the ones that get rid of pollution. So I can see you've got a lot of pollution. You can't build anything until you clear the pollution. You probably want some fire cards, player to the right. So I think I'll wait. I'll wait for you to draft, and then I'll play when I've truly got the fewest and I can get the biggest benefit out of this card. That is cool. That is fun. It's really kind of a randomizer. I've got two randomizers to determine how well my cards play, but they're not just die rolls or, or um, you know, something like that, or a cube tower. They're human beings, and I love that. So, uh, and I love it even more in a two-player game, because in the two-player game, I've got only one neighbor. You know, I'm playing with my wife, Jen. My other neighbor is the five cards that are laid out on the table that are the ones that I use to um, refill my hand. So we have some limited control over what my other neighbor has. I love that too. I think the game is best as a two-player game, quite frankly. Although it's fast no matter how you play it. Because at the end of the day, it's a race. Once one player finishes building five villages, which also gives them the opportunity to unlock um, upwards of five uh, bonus objectives they're trying to do, they get some bonus points and that triggers the end of the game. And so we're racing, racing, racing to repopulate the forest, clear out the pollution, um, move our people around so they can build new villages and score us lots of points. And the only reason the game comes in lower is because that second half of the game is good, but it's not great. It is totally solid. The um, you know the tile laying, trying to get the right types of tiles next to each other. I mean, all that stuff works nicely, but. The core gameplay is so amazing, the way you interact with other players. Not in an aggressive way, um, but more just trying to anticipate which way they're going to go. I, I absolutely adore that. 
And I wish the rest of the game kind of lived up to it. The rest of the game is good, but that's great. And so uh, it's that combination that brings Tribes of the Wind in at number 10 of the month for me. And by the way, folks, uh, don't take my word for it. Go watch my run-through of the game, and you can see for yourself if it looks like you'd have a good time. I'm just one data point, everybody. Anyway, let's move on to number 9 now. Scorecards. Now, this is from legendary designer Mike Fitzgerald. <clears throat> and... Um, at first glance, it really just kind of looks like an Uno sort of game. And I think that's kind of on purpose. They're trying to go for that really simple, straightforward, streamlined, mass market, um, could buy at you know, any um, you know, major department store style game. But do not be fooled. This game has such hidden depths. It's a simple, on my turn, I'm going to play a card from my hand and then draw another card. And we keep doing that until a round is over. Um, but the thing is, every time I play a card, every card is a scorecard. It says, hey, if you play this card right now, here's how I will score points. And most all or all the cards basically pay attention to what's already been played. But not only what's been played by you, what's been played by everybody. So if um, I've got a card that um, wants uh, scores me a lot of points, if a lot of red cards have been played, it's not just me playing red cards. If I see you're playing a lot of red cards, then I want to hold on to this because maybe you're going to play a few more cards uh, of your own, and then I could get super points out of this if I can anticipate which way you're going. And the more you play this game, the more you're going to know what types of things are available. Um, you know, the first time you play, you're just kind of being very active, but you can be proactive as you get better at this game. And but now what really is interesting is once a round gets finished, um, what happens is we hold on to the cards we haven't played, we refill, and then all the cards that have been played that we were relying on to be, hey, I just needed one more card so I could play this green card and blah, blah, blah. Everything gets wiped out and you start over. So there's kind of a push-your-luck element. Do I just go ahead and get this played now for some points? Or do I hope that if I wait a little bit longer, but not too long, I can get a bigger payday? This game is really fun. And if you don't mind abstract card games, I think you're going to love it. Uh, folks, uh, as, uh, between you and me, I overheard Tom Vassell talking to a very big publisher in the industry saying, you need to pick this game up before somebody else does. It's a really big deal. It's not why available right now, um, uh, but uh, you know Mike Fitzgerald was at the show showing it off to publishers, so keep an eye out for it in the future, folks. Uh, for me, I need a theme. If this game had any kind of theme, even something like, I don't know, some kind of Tron virtual hacker thing in cyberspace or the origins of microbial life. It could have been anything, because I need a little bit of theme. But if you don't, then I think you are going to be very, very impressed when you can finally get your hand on a copy of Scorecards. Alrighty, then let's go on to number eight on the list. Come on, Starlink. There you go, Starlink. Out in the middle of the desert, no cell coverage anywhere, and yet I am pulling the internet from space to talk to you about number eight on the list, Astronauts Eternity. Now, this is the NES expansion coming out for Astronauts, which is an excellent, streamlined version of one of my all-time favorite deck builders, Aeon's End. Aeon's End and Astronauts are known predominantly for being the game, the deck builder, where you don't have to reshuffle your deck. You have so much control over your deck. They are cooperative games where players are working together to take down big, scary, seemingly impossible to beat bosses, and yet somehow um, you can pull it off by the skin of your teeth, and it's a really great design. Aeon's End, one of the all-time great. Astro Knights, 
almost as good, but not quite because, for me anyway, it's a lighter, faster game. It's designed to be able to set up and play quicker and without all the crunchy complications of Aeon's End. So, I kept my copy of Astronauts. I love it if forever I want to play some Aeon's End, but I want it faster, quicker. I don't want to spend 20 minutes setting up all the special decks and all that. Or if I just want to have science fiction instead of fantasy. So anyway, the new one, Astronauts Eternity, which I can't show because there's nothing about it anywhere online. So you're getting a little sneak peek for something that's going to be crowdfunding next month. Uh, it adds several new things. It's what you want from an expansion like this. It's a bunch of new cards um, you know, a bunch of new playable characters, a bunch of new bosses, and um, it adds several new features, like the, um, oh, what's it called? The expedition system from Aeon's End, where players can create their own little mini campaigns to play through. Plus, it comes with a very, very cool story-driven campaign, because uh, Astronauts Eternity is set, I don't know, generations after the astronauts disappeared. And so a new ragtag group of ne'er-do-wells have to be, you know, take on the mantle of the astronauts and save the galaxy. Um, so it, it's fun. It's a, you know, fun, silly stuff. But if you just want to fight big bosses and all that, it works really well. But there are some cool new card effects too. I really like the one, I can't remember the name of it, where once you discard this card, you kind of splay it off to the side because as long as it stays in your discard pile, it's a permanent power you've got. And so in a game where you can so readily control the flow of your deck, being able to keep cards in your discard pile uh, to give you those special abilities and then being, ah, no, I don't want to reshuffle my deck. Or, again, you don't reshuffle your deck. I don't want to reset my deck. Uh, that's cool. There's uh, another power that uh, cards you can play not on your turn, but on your opponent's turns to boost them. There's a lot of cool stuff. Um, and yeah, if you love Astronites, then you know you're going to want to get this. And if if you love Aeon's In like I do and you haven't tried Astronites, uh, this might be a good time to jump on board because it's got lots of really cool new ideas and it comes in at number eight of the list. Okay, then let's go on to number seven, Pioneer Rails. You can do it, Starlink. Don't let me down, Starlink. There we go. From space right to this RV in the middle of nowhere. Uh, let's talk about number seven, Pioneer Rails, which is a roll and write. And I was so excited when I heard that Jeffrey Allers and Matt Dunstan, two of my favorite designers who I believe have never worked together, are coming together to make a roll and write. And I love roll and writes um, with multi-use cards and bingo-style gameplay. Sign me up! Now... I have, my video for this hasn't gone up yet. It'll be going live in April when the uh, crowdfunding campaign for this game starts. But let me just tell you right now, folks, this is very cool. I said multi-use cards. What happens is every round, and we're going to play through 20 rounds, three cards are drawn. Whoever is currently the dealer, and that just changes from round to round, picks one of those three cards and keeps it for themselves, and then everybody else uses one of the two remaining cards. We've seen this in kind of other stuff before. But... How do you choose what card? Well, the cards are poker cards. Um, what is it? The 10, the jack, the queen, the king, and the ace in all four suits. So you've got a deck of 20 cards. And so most turns, you're going to have two cards to choose from. Like you might have the ace of hearts and the 10 of spades, right? So which one are you going to use? Everybody is going to use one of those two. Well, the face... The 10 or the jack is important because every fifth round, um, you are going to, you're keeping track of every face you choose. And at the end of the fifth round, you're going to score based on poker hands. So you want to get a full house. You want to get four of a kind. You want to get a straight. You want to get two pair. Um, and all the normal poker stuff of, hey, if I go for a full house, if it doesn't work out, I know at least I can pull off this three of a kind. Maybe that'll be something. Do I decide? You know, all that stuff works here. And so that's one use. You care about the, the face. 
because you're trying to make these poker hands four times over the course of the game. But you also care about the suit because the suit clubs, um, is it club spades, diamonds, and hearts? I believe that's right. Uh, my wife always calls them clovers. Uh, anyway, the suit tells you where are you going to extend your rail line because this is a rail linking game where we are trying to get a whole bunch of rail lines um, connected between mines and banks so that we can deposit the gold nuggets between um, the sheriff's office and the old uh, the, the desperados so we can um, collect reward money um you know cutting off the uh, you know separating different ranches so all the cattle have their own land every type of building that you can connect to is you're expanding from either the heart region the clover region the diamond region or the spade region uh, is going to give you access to different buildings uh, including buildings that give you special powers that let you like override the suits or um, build rails across rivers, you know, as a bridge or tunnel through mountain walls and all kinds of stuff like that. Every time you play, there's going to be a different collection of objectives you're trying to complete. And that tension of, I really want that jack to make four of a kind. But I really need to expand right now from the hearts because I'm trying to get to that last um, um, that last bank and I'm running out of time. Which one do I take? Do I take the ten of hearts or the jack of spades? Ah! I love multi-use cards. I love rolling rights. This game is fantastic. Um, and also, not for nothing, it is probably one of the heavier rolling rights that have come out so far. Um, you know, this is definitely a cut above what we are come to expect. It really makes you crunch, gives you a lot to think about, and it's number seven of the month, Pioneer Rails. Okay. Let's go on to number six. And number six, I'm sorry I can't show this game to you because I played it in prototype form at Dice Tower West. Yes, another prototype I played at the convention. But still, I just want to tell everybody about Ross, A Dance of Love. Now, this is a game from the co-designer of Viticulture World. Uh, this guy, with some help, took Viticulture and turned it into a cooperative game and made it ten times better. I definitely wanted to see what he had in mind yet. And so I've met him at previous Dice Towers. He came up and said, Rado, I really want to show you this. And so we sat down and played it, and I was blown away. Now, why? Well, um, unfortunately, there aren't very many pictures on BoardGameGeek, are there? No, there are not. Um, but if you ever saw this game in real life, and you saw it in motion, you would immediately come over and want to play it because this is a game that replicates the real-world dance traditions in India of Ross, the Dance of Love, where big groups of people are swirling and full of beautiful colors and dancing around. And um, the board is actually a collection of individual discs. On each one of these discs are a collection of dancers. The dancers are represented by beautiful, beautiful translucent dice. The picture I've got here shows cubes, but they're actually beautiful dice. And every round... We're going to turn that central disc and all of the other ones are going to turn. If you've ever played Zulkin, the Mayan calendar from you know, Czech Games Edition and thought, man, I love this, but I wish the gears would turn more. They turn all the time here. And so much of this game is uh, equally spent trying to figure out, right, which uh, dancers are going to be next to each other after the rotation so that I can get bonuses because we're trying to do a dance of love. And if the right dancers meet with the other right dancers, that's great. If you can anticipate how things are going to rotate. But we are also, um, each group of dancers on each disc, you've got the number, you've 
you've got the color of the dice, and then you've got the, the color of the slot they're in. So these are triple-use dice, and you care about drafting all three of those things. The color they're in represents the action you can do, the, um, you know, the, the colors of the dice and the numbers represent how good they are at the different types of dances. Oh my gosh, it's so cool. Anybody would want to play this game, but I should warn you, based on the prototype I played, it is a super crunchy game. Maybe even too crunchy. And that's why this comes in at number six. It's still got some rough edges. They're still working on the design. They just had a prototype at Dice Tower West to show to publishers to try to garner interest. Well, I'll tell you right now, folks, I am super interested in this game. If those little, um, like some rough edges get tweaked out, and I gave some suggestions for what I think would be done, and I think he kind of liked them. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. I expect this is going to get a lot of attention. As the heir apparent to Zulkin the Mind Calendar that does gears better than Zulkin ever did, it is so freaking cool. It is my number six of the month, Ross, Dance of Love. Okay, then let's go on to number five. Uh, it is the return of Uwe Rosenberg, one of the greatest designers of all time, doing what he does best. Heavy, crunchy, economic Euro simulations in Orienburger Canal. Now, I'll be doing a run-through for this next month, so you'll be able to see it soon. So I'm not going to go too much into detail. But suffice to say, folks, why was I excited about this game? Why, you ask? Because it is the return of the resource wheel. First introduced in Aura at Labora, and then we saw it again in Glass Road, I want to say. It might have been a different one. I think it was Glass Road. Tell me down in the comments if I was wrong about that, folks. Um, yeah, this is a two-way street. Anyway, I'm just trying to do this from memory. But regardless, the resource wheel is as good as ever. You know, moving and consuming some goods to create other goods. I love it. But um, that's not what makes this game special because we've seen the resource wheel before. This is a worker placement game for two players only, although there is a very good solo mode as well. And as you would expect from Uwe Rosenberg, he was way ahead of the curve on that. And what we're trying to do, each player has a board, a four by three. I forget the name of the town we're in, some Austrian town or German town, but it is where the Orienburger Canal is. I'm sorry, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but anyway. And um, over the course of the game, we are going to be doing worker placement. There are only seven worker placement spots in this game. Five of them are going to get activated every turn, and the ones that don't get some money to make them more attractive. Plus, the worker placement spots uh, level up over time also. But anyway, simple, straightforward worker placement to um, get the resources we need to build the buildings that we want to put on our board. And the thing is, these buildings, they give you points. But more importantly... They have a special ability that you can activate. To activate them, you get to activate each building twice. Once, when you completely surround it with route tiles. Whether they are paths or roads or canals or rail lines. Once you completely surround it, you get to activate that building. Then you get to activate that building again once you have connected it to two other buildings with bridges over those routes. Or it might go the other way. First you might activate it with bridges and then later on by surrounding it. Either way, this becomes such a rich puzzle. You're trying to figure out which buildings to put next to other buildings because they both kind of use the same types. You know, if we got both of the, I've got trying to build both of these things that want canals, I want them next to each other with canals running between them so I can eventually put a bridge over them so I could activate both of them and all kinds of stuff. And it's just wonderful. The um, depth and complexity of this puzzle is great. My only complaint about the game is not really my complaint. It's my wife's complaint, and it's a decent one. This game is trying to be language independent. So all the building cards, and by the end of the game, you've got a bunch of cards on your own table you're trying to keep track of, plus six you could be drafting. They're all just awash with dozens of icons. 
this game would have been so good to not be language independent, to say, hey, here's the German deck, and here's the English deck, and here's the Italian deck, and I know that costs more money, but you have to learn a, a language of icons in this game, and towards the end of the game, it can get a bit overwhelming. Now, for I think it's worth it. I think it's worth putting in the time, and I think my wife does too. But that is one minor complaint in an otherwise stellar, phenomenal uh, game from Uwe Rosenberg, who is working at peak form. This game is fantastic. It's number five on the list. It is very hard to pronounce. Oranienburger Canal. Okay, then let's go on, folks, to number four, uh, Expedition. And I know... That is a pretty uh, nondescript... Uh, this is the, probably the fifth or sixth board game that has that title. That's too bad. Um, it makes it hard to find, but it's even hard to find because right now it is only available in South Korea. Published by Korea Board, by, uh, Korea board Games. Man, um, I was able to check this out because they are looking to find publishing partners. And any publishers watching this roundup right now, I highly recommend you contact them and get this on your roster because this is such a fresh new take on deck building. This is going to really surprise people when somebody picks it up and brings it to the wider world because right now it's only available in Korea. What is it though? Well, you've got a randomly generated jungle island that we're Indiana jonesing through trying to f dig up treasures. It's a deck builder, so we have a starting deck with some of the cutest art you have ever seen. You're going to fall in love with this game when you start seeing some of these character cards uh, if they show up as I scroll through these pictures. But anyway, um, you know, your cards let you move around from space to space. They let you dig up treasures when you find buried stuff. They uh, let you uh, generate money so you can hire more people. Nope, not very many pictures here. Let's just go back to the main one. Um, so, so far, all this sounds pretty straightforward, right? What makes this game special is the way it handles deck building. Because, first of all, you don't have to play all your cards and then discard the rest. If you want, you could have a perfectly valid turn just playing two of the five cards in your hand and then refilling your hand. And often you'll find yourself doing that. Because here's the deal, folks. You only get to go through your deck once. You do not. When you get to the end of your deck, you don't just reshuffle and flip it over and then just keep drawing cards. When you run out of cards, your expedition is done. But at the end of every turn, you have the option to say, hey, you know what? I have uh, bushwhacked my way deep into this jungle. I found some good stuff, but now I need to get back to camp because I want to hire some new people. At the end of every turn, you have the option to just instantly basically teleport back to the starting tile, no matter how deep you've explored, and then... Use all the money you've accumulated, potentially over multiple turns, because money is not virtual. There are coins. You save this money up from round to round so you can hire some people. And then on your next turn, uh, and then after you hire people, you then take all the cards you played, all the cards you haven't played, all the cards you just bought, shuffle it up, make a new hand, and next round you can start going out again. Sounds really simple, but wow, does this ever shake up the um, state of deck building, and I love it. Now, folks, you're going to get to see a run-through of this. I'm very jealous. Amy and Maggie will be running through this later in April, and I can't wait to show it to you because it's fantastic. I'll probably do a group final thoughts with them because I was blown away by this game. They're going to have gotten to play it more than me, and I want to talk to them about it. But in the meantime, folks, all I can say is, Watch this space because um, I am really hoping some publisher out there is smart enough to pick this up because this is a special one. Number four on the list, Expedition. Okay, let's go on to number three. Let's go to Japan. 
Let's go to Japan! Yay! Here's my run-through. I've already covered it. It's from uh, Designer Joss Woods and AEG. And oh my gosh, this game is such a wonderful card-drafting thematic game all about trying to plan the perfect trip for a six-week vacation in Japan. It was actually inspired by Designer Joss Wood doing this in real life and realizing, oh, I could make a game out of this. And what a game he has made. Every turn... Most turns, you're going to have two cards in your hand. You're going to pick one for yourself, put it on one of the six days, and that is you building your itinerary. Each of the six days is also going to have three cards on it. And the card you didn't choose goes to your opponent, um, and they'll pick it up later. And um, you'll have to choose between it. And so, as you might imagine, this is a game of, man, I really need to visit more gardens. I should play this card. But um, I really have this other special effect, so I, this other one will work for me too. But if I give away the garden card, you want it even more, because I can see you've got an objective for visiting lots of gardens by, uh, by the time Wednesday comes around, so I can't give you that card. But I can't give you the other card because that's the one I really want. What am I going to do? That kind of tension works so well here. But what's really special is by the end of the game, you will have three cards lined up in front of every day. And um, the bottommost card, the one, or I should say the one that's on the top of the stack, that represents an objective you have for that day. Every day has like a morning, an afternoon, and an evening card you want to do. That evening card... It means, like, it might be that by um, the end of Thursday, I want to have visited, I want to have gone shopping at least four times. And so, by me putting that card there, I've given myself a goal of having a whole bunch of shopping happening sometime on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday morning. Now, here's the deal. Tuesday might have randomly been selected to be the perfect shopping day. So I know, okay, I'm going to put this on Thursday because by Thursday comes around, I will have already had a super shopping extravaganza on Tuesday because Tuesday is the best shopping day. And that's, again, all randomized. So uh, by the end of the game, you will have six objectives you have chosen for yourself. And at the same time that you are building those objectives, you are um, building the resources to complete them. And the last thing we do in the game is we actually go on our trip and we resolve resolve everything, and sometimes you can be surprised, because sometimes you don't like the cards you've got, and so you can just discard them, and then draw a card blind, keep it face down, and that represents on Tuesday, when you put that, when you discover that face down card, you go for a walk, and hopefully it's what you need, and sometimes it is, but it's always exciting, this is a wonderful game, it is so thematic, and I just want to take a second to do a quick shout out to Matthew of the YouTube channel, Room 51, Matthew spent an hour reading the rules at Dice Tower West to teach me how to play the game. And I'm really appreciated. We had a great time, me, Matthew, and I think it was your fiance, Matthew. I'm, I'm sorry, it was, I don't remember if your fiance or your wife, but I had a great time playing with you. Um, folks, check out Room 51. There's a, hit that eye in the top right corner screen. There's a link down in the show notes. Matthew is a frequent contributor on the Dice Tower Board Game Breakfast, but he has his own channel as well, and it is fantastic. Matt, you were awesome. I had a great time playing with you uh, as we all went to Japan with number three, Let's Go to Japan. Okay, folks, let's move on to number two. Now, this is the thousand-pound elephant in the room. It's the one everybody's talking about. It's Earth. And let me tell you right now, folks, this lives up to the hype. I'm calling it now. There is no way this game doesn't make it into the Board Game Geek Top 100 by the end of the year. I would be shocked if this doesn't make it into my own Top 10 Games of the Year. It's so good. This is, as far as I'm concerned, this is a terraforming Mars killer. This is close to an Ark Nova killer because this is one of those games that has a gigantic brick of uh, almost 400 cards, all of them unique, so you get so much variety as you're trying to build up the perfect biome in this um, card drafting, uh, what do you call it, uh, engine building game, right? 
But the uh, thing about this game that it really makes it special is you get all the depth and crunchiness and complexity and fun of a big, epic game of Terraforming Mars of Ark Nova in an hour, no matter how many players. Uh, it does the, uh, does the, you know, the um, what do you call it, the race for the galaxy thing, right? Of, hey, there's four actions. on When I'm the lead player, I can choose any of those four. I do a strong version of it. Everybody else does a weak version. Whether it's collecting more soil so I can play more cards, whether it's playing those cards, whether it's filling those cards up with sprouts and seeds, or, or growth and seeds, or whether it's just drawing more cards so that I can get more played. Because everybody's racing to make the best 4x4 grid of flora and fauna they can. And often these cards want to be in the same row or column with other ones, or um, you know they want to... Uh, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can score points off of these cards, depending on how they're laid out. But what's most important, you lay them out because you're making an engine. Whenever somebody does the orange action, right? They get to do a strong orange action. They get a lot of soil for playing cards. Everybody else does a weak orange action, they get a little bit of soil, but then everybody, the lead player and everybody, activates all their orange cards they've previously played. So, uh, the trick is, you've got to activate them in order from top left to bottom right. So you've got, you've already got other restrictions for how you're trying to expand your little 4x4 grid, but then you throw into this complexity of this very specific way that you're building an engine out of your 4x4 tableau. Mm. Mwah! Chef's kiss. Like I said, it lives up to the hype. Uh, it got my wife's one of her very rare five out of five stars. She almost never gives those out. She loves it. I played this game over half a dozen times at Dice Tower West. Every time I was finished playing, somebody else walked by. Oh, can you teach me how to play the game? And I just kept playing it, and I never got tired of it. Number two for the month, Earth. And yet, folks, and yet, there's a number one. Oh my gosh, yes. Number one for the month of March 2023 for me was a little game an expansion, I should say, called Furnace Interbellum. Now, Furnace is just about perfection. It is one of the greatest auction games of all time. They don't make games like this anymore. So smooth playing, so elegant, so much fun. You can go watch my original run-through video I did of it to see what I thought of it, why it made my top 10 of the year. But here's the deal, folks. If the Interbellum expansion content had shipped with the original, it Furnace might have been my number one game of that year because this so elevates the game. It adds a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, First of all, it adds the resources so you can have a five-player game, which is nice if you like like that. I mean, I don't particularly care about that, but it is nice for people who want to play five players, and I, I think it looks like it'll work great. But more importantly, it adds new things like an extra bidding chip that is programmable, You and how much coal you put in is how strong it is. So, And if you know Furnace, you know that's a big deal. A fifth bid where you can specify any value you want. You can even go bid higher than um, five or six if you've got enough coal to spend. So it gives another use to coal in the game, which is also awesome. But, hey, if there are more bids to make, there are more things to bid on. There are these new tiles that are managers. When you get them, they are not buildings like the regular cards that you're adding to make your engine. Instead, these managers are free floaters that you can apply to your existing cards. Every time you run your engine, you can put them on a different um, card, and it gives you so much more flexibility. Um, plus, they add a whole bunch of new cards. A lot of cards with a lot of text, actually. Um, because the original game, all the cards were really, really really simple. You know, just goods conversion type stuff. But now, a lot of the cards you can be bidding on give you ongoing special powers. They won't do anything for you immediately, but once you've got them, you want to leverage them for the rest of the game. So, 
this um, takes such a simple L game. It makes it a little bit more complex, but not too complex. But oh my God, does it up the crunch factor through the roof. And it makes an already perfect game somehow even more perfect. It was my number one game of the month. The expansion for Furnace, known as Furnace Interbellum. It'll be coming later in the year. Watch for it, folks. This game is something really, really special. I, for backers of the show, will be doing a solo run-through of it before the month is out. So if you're a Rado Recluse backer on Patreon or a more Rado backer on YouTube, you can watch me play it and see why I think it's the bee's knees. And that's it, folks. Phew. That was a lot. And that is it, folks. Not very many games. I seem to spend a lot of time talking about them, don't I? Well, it is time to get back to resting and relaxing in this beautiful landscape. Uh, Jen and I actually did a 12-mile e-bike ride earlier down the road, and we might be deciding to move to a less windy location after we scouted down the road to the Valley of the Gods. But anyway, folks, you may have noticed there's a bunch of names over there flying by. These are all the people who help Rotto run, who support the show, either on Patreon, on YouTube, as members, or on Twitch. And thank you so much to everybody for helping keeping things going. And also, because some of you go a bit above and beyond there, I'm going to do a special shout-out thanks to... In no particular order, Amy Adams, Graham Wallace, Marianne Gonzalez, Dave Salvatore, Demnoa 2030CE, Kristen Bailey, Cheryl Howard, Kisa Griffin, Eric Z, Lex, Heather Rudarian, Dr. Fu... Nicholas Elkins, Ben Eastasimleonis, Jeff Young, Marlon Cruz, El Crosso, uh, as he's also known, Jay Huber, Kevin Bertram, Chris Arnold, Caitlin Albert, Jerry Reese, um, Davey Davis, Charles Hill, Adrian Dog, Cobra Misfit, Jeff Glazen, Blake Wilson, Sharon Laubach, Dan Halligan, Victory BHG, Janice Inti, Jimmy Schroeder, Hansen, Hans Peter Back, Mom Gamer, Marilyn Christiele, Mike Bloom, Cameron Zafar, Stacy Lee, and Selma Lee, and Steve Ercolini. Thanks especially to you folks, but thanks to all of you. Bye. And uh, finally, in closing, for the last time, sadly, on uh, the Rotto Roundup, thank you very much to sponsor the show, Fun Again Games. Have a very, very nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.